Well, the Cardinals are off today, and that means it is time for another Cardinals Off Day podcast. This is Ben Godar. Uh, with me, as always, is my good friend, Ben Humphrey. Ben, how you doing? I'm doing well, Mr. Godar. As always, it's lovely to join you. Uh, it is especially enjoyable to do so after the Cardinals have had the opportunity to play the bottom dwellers, the cellar dwellers, the bottom feeders of the National League for about a week and a half straight. It really puts a bounce in your step when your team wins a lot because they're playing terrible opponents. It is. It is. Yeah, we don't overall endorse, uh, you know, believing too much in kind of short term things, but it's hard to not get excited uh, when you watch your team uh, steamroll some bum teams. So, Ben, over uh, these last few weeks, uh, what have you learned? Um, I have learned that um, I, I don't know how well we as fans can evaluate this team. Um, and I had this thought kind of brought together by a Jeff Jones uh, tweet where he shared that the Cardinals were like 500 against the rest of the league and winning about two thirds of their games against the Cubs, Pirates and Reds. And, um, and the ups and downs that you kind of see on Twitter and the way folks are reacting to this team, uh, I, I think it's kind of based on the quality of team that they're playing. Um, but I also think that this is sort of a weird situation to be in uh, as a fan, because there's really only one other team that's even trying to win in the division. Yeah. And with the unbalanced schedule, the Cardinals play bad teams a lot. And I just don't know how to evaluate their players. You know, it's kind of like, Right. Almost like, you know, going toggling between like triple A or spring training and major league baseball because the, the other teams are so uh, their talent level is so low because they're tanking. Yeah. Well, I always come back to when I think about baseball, uh, like, you know, the best teams win about 60 percent of the time and the worst teams win about 40 percent of the time. So, you know, in any given game, in any given series, in any given month, it's it's very hard to differentiate very much and as you said yeah the quality of your competition factors into it but that's a really small slice too you know it's not like football with a strength of schedule you know kind of component to it so it is weird it's it you know the football strength of schedule you know that we we talk about football brain and how it's kind of polluting baseball fandom but really that is maybe a the closest I guess analog that we have is like the non-conference cupcakes versus the, you know, the tough conference schedule. Right. Um, right. But, but, but in football, but, you know, you know the, the, the better team might win, you know, 80% of the time, for example. And in baseball, yes, it's yes. so much more of a coin flip that it's, it's hard to even suss that out. And, you know, it's past Memorial Day, so I check in on the standings, you know, a little bit more often. I, I still don't watch them very closely. Right. But the Cincinnati Reds have a 350 win per, winning percentage. The Cubs have a 390 winning percentage. And the Pittsburgh Pirates are at 414. And the Pirates are negative 91 run differential. The Cubs negative 42. And the Reds negative 56. And, you know, that's 
That's just really that's, terrible. That's music to my ears, Ben, is what that is. <laughs> <laughs> it, they're, they're baseball Christmas carols. Uh, Christmas in July uh, is when you face uh, one of those three teams. It's like opening a Red Rider BB gun. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, um, one thing that I've learned, and I just learned this pretty interest, pretty recently, I should say, is that uh, we might have a change or a shakeup at catcher. I wouldn't have really thought so, but uh, Ali Marmol um, just a, a couple days ago uh, was asked basically about the fact that neither of the team's catchers are hitting. And he said uh, about Andrew Kisner, we've had the conversation. We've got to see better at bats out of Kiz. And then he was asked if Molina was healthier, if he might get more play going forward. And he said, we're going to take a look at that. Now, Ben, the year-to-date OPS Plus, as, as we sit here today recording, for Andrew Kisner is a 61 and for Yadi is 54. Um, and again, of course, 100 is league average. So that's real bad. Now, in May and June, you have uh, Yadi had a 85 for May, 12 for June. Andrew Kisner had 74 for May and negative 62 so far this June. So that's all really bad. But it is also worth noting that as bad as... It, it all is. Yachty has actually been slightly more productive over the last uh, couple months, but uh, you know, Yachty's not going anywhere. Yachty's going to be on this team, of course. Um, and I don't really necessarily see them making a move, except that they do have Ivan Herrera on the 40 man. He was up, you know, made his major league debut this year. You know, if it continues to struggle, I could see them giving Herrera a shot at it because why not at that point? Although I have to say, uh, for a, a young catcher making his debut in the league, I would be shocked if he produces better than Andrew Kisner is. And, and that's even coming from someone myself who, uh, you know, expects that Ivan Herrera is going to be the successor to Yachty and is going to be a major league regular. Catcher is just such a difficult position, such a difficult transition. I don't know that they'll get an upgrade there. So anyway... Uh, I don't have any, any idea what they you know would do there, but it, I thought it was interesting that Marmol at least kind of introduced the idea that they might be considering a change, which, you know, anytime the manager kind of voices something like that, it's, it's entered the realm of possibility because they don't just drop those things lightly. So um, that'll be something I'm it's something I picked up on and something I'll be kind of watching for going forward as well. And, uh, you know, I was seeing some of the, discourse about this, uh, these comments on Twitter and, you know, Marmol specifically called out Kisner, uh, for not taking good at bats. And, you know, my first thought was there's nothing more frustrating than Yadier Molina swinging at the first pitch. Like he, and, and he takes some bad at bats and I looked it up on, baseball savant they have a run value based on swings and takes and they look at how you do on on balls over the heart of the plate on the shadow of the plate and then your chase how often you chase and how often you uh how you do on waste pitches which are just terrible pitches and the thing that i found uh, really interesting is that um yadi has been particularly bad over balls over the heart of the plate and Kisner has been particularly bad on balls on the shadow of the plate. Oh. And they've both done a, uh, okay on chases and okay on wastes. But, but and ben, so based, I found based on, based on the first thing you said there, I'm wondering, can they both get into the box at the same time? Because if they did, they might be able to cover the whole plate. I know I haven't checked the rule book. Is, is there anything in there that says you can't have two players in the batter's box at the same time? 
Well, I, I believe that is against the rules, although okay. I don't know if there's a rule that expressly prohibits it. Is, is there um, a rule that says that a dog cannot play baseball? <laughs> no, Air Bud can play baseball. This All has right. been covered okay. in a movie. Okay, so, so Air Bud's my new solution. But anyway, Ben, I'm sorry I kind of stepped on you there. I was just going to say, so it, it tracks a little bit like with Kisner learning and adjusting to major league pitching and pitchers are able to get him out on pitchers pitches, which are just off the plate. They are unable to do that to Yadier Molina, uh, but Yadi, who it, has been out of shape and lo- has kind of played himself into shape and is also declining with age. He doesn't struggle too badly uh, with those types of pitches. He's just struggling with the pitches over the plate that he should be handling um, you know, perhaps if he were a younger man who was in better shape, he would be. Yeah. And so the question that crossed my mind, Ben, and I put it to you, you know, over the next few months, assuming they're both on, on the team, do you think it's more likely Yadi is going to do a better job of being productive on balls in the strike zone over, over the plate, or that Kisner is going to get better at not swinging at pitchers pitches and getting himself out i don't know i mean honestly i could see i could see both things happening because i do think that you know yadi is still slowly getting himself into the best shape that he's possible able to get into at this point which is not good but i still believe that there's a little more room for improvement there and uh you know kisner he's been around for a few years but he's still a young player so i guess there'd be hope for some positives and approach changing there but um you know we'll we'll see it's obviously something we're watching and something the cardinals are watching as well um well ben before we get into our we've got three kind of main topics today we want to discuss uh we've also got listener questions we're going to get to uh, but we do have a, a new advertiser this week uh this is actually our first uh pharmaceutical advertiser which i'm very excited about because as you probably know the pharmaceutical industry spends a tremendous amount of money on advertising and uh you know ben and i do this podcast to enrich ourselves financially so this was this was good news for us um so let me track this down all right are you an active senior over the age of 75 who struggles with confusion and decision making in the late afternoon do you find it hard to remember details like the ball strike count or the relative value of an intentional walk try larusavar Lerusivar is a once-daily pill to be taken in the fifth inning or later. Lerusivar should not be taken by anyone with type 2 diabetes, pitching coaches, or Don Mattingly. Don, that's oddly specific. Uh, common side effects include diarrhea, loss of appetite, and belligerent press conferences. Take back your life. Get Lance Lynn up in the bullpen. Try Lerusivar. All right, man. And thank you to the to the good folks who make Lerusivar. I, I hear it's... It's uh, still in its early phases, but it's showing some promise uh, with the larger population. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I haven't really checked into that. I'm, I'm not ethical enough to, you know, investigate the claims made by any of our advertisers. But, you know, I'd prefer it worked. So. Um, all right, Ben. So uh, the first topic we wanted to kind of hit on today really sort of related to some comments that uh, Ali Marmol made um, a little over a week ago now, I think, uh, in relation to uh, uh, Jake Woodford specifically. 
And, uh, you know, he was asked essentially about why Woodford hasn't maybe gotten more of a shot this year. And uh, Marmol's quote was, has he gotten outs? Yes. Do we think him going down and improving his sliders going to make getting out sustainable? The answer is yes. Do we think over time that if he keeps pitching the way that he's been pitching, it's sustainable? No. And that really perked my ears up because it kind of connected with something that you and I have talked about. Uh, specific to Woodford, um, but also just other players in general, which is, you know, the idea of, uh, you know, a player who might perform well in something like ERA, but there's a lot of questions and sort of the underlying, uh, you know, metrics and things there. So I thought that was very interesting for Marmol to call that out specifically, and in this case, specifically call out his slider. Um, and then just um, within a uh, last couple of days, he, um, Ali said something to uh, John Denton in regard to TJ McFarland. Um, he I, apparently he said I don't have the exact quote for this one, but he said that McFarland was trending in a great direction, and the, he said the cards judge him on the vertical break of his sinker and the ground balls he induces. So I think you and I wanted to touch on that a little bit because I think it's interesting just to hear that uh, Marmol kind of say specifically these are some of the things that they're listening that they're looking for. Um, but again, for me, it, it's interesting because it ties back to, I think, a lot of what we've said about Woodford, as well as some of the things that both of us, and I know myself specifically, have said about Dakota Hudson on here. And, and I know I've gotten some uh, you know, tweets and questions and stuff from people pointing out you know, Dakota Hudson's uh, very good ERA. Uh, and you know, there's some, been some tweets that kind of line that up and everything, too. But um, so I guess first off, I just wanted to kind of highlight some of what we're talking about, we talk about pitch values and specifically where um, listeners can go and check this out. Um, so obviously, uh, you know, ERA, I think people often, uh, you see cited often, um, but we know that ERA is not a very good measure of a, of a pitcher. There's, there's a lot of uh, problems with ERA. So I know myself, Ben, the first thing I do when I'm evaluating how good is a pitcher's performance actually is I look at fielding independent pitching. Um, is that, is, do you do the same? Yes, I do. Uh, fielding independent pitching uh, for folks who might not be familiar with it as a metric. Um, the reason that I prefer it to earned run average is earned run average is an indirect reflection of how the pitcher has performed. It's measuring, of course, how many earned runs the pitcher allows based on how many outs the pitcher has gotten uh, as reflected in his pitched as well. And so the earned run average, you know, the official scorekeeper is also reflected in that as is defense. And then fielding independent pitching looks at strikeouts, walks, home runs, uh, and then it puts it on a an era scale because if you're like us you grew up with era so you have that built-in idea of what's good and what's not and so that is where i typically start um and feeling independent pitching of course boros mccracken came up with the whole philosophy or the theory i should say that pitchers have no or very little control over how a hitter hits the ball And so fielding independent pitching attempts to take the hitter and the defense to an extent out of that. Um, And so if I want to know how a pitcher has pitched, uh, that is where I begin. Um, And I think it's a very good metric. You can find it on Fangraphs uh, and some other sites. 
Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Baseball Reference, I know, has has FIP as well. Um, but to take it kind of even one level below that now, because Marmol is talking specifically about individual pitches, okay? And there's different ways that, you know, we can look at that now. And it's really growing and expanding. And we know that teams may have some ways that they're looking at things that are proprietary that we don't even have access to. So you can look at StatCast data at a place like Baseball Savant. You can look at things like spin rate and things like that for certain pitches. Um, that can be very interesting, um, but it can also be a little challenging. I mean, every pitch type has a different, maybe optimal spin rate. Sometimes a pitch can be too low or too high. Um, whether a pitcher is tunneling their pitches or not, you know, there's enough things there that I think it's hard to look at that some of that spin rate type data in the raw if you don't really have a lot of context and draw anything from it. But Ben, one thing I like to look at at Fangraphs is just their their pitch value linear weights. And so uh, the pitch value, if you've ever looked at those at Fangraphs, and it uses the same concept as anything else that uses linear weights, they basically they're just looking at every count. So, you know, zero balls and zero strikes, one oh, one two, whatever it is. And based on the pitch that the pitcher throws, how does it improve the, uh, the run expectancy? So uh, taking a look at Fangraph's pitch values for Jake Woodford uh, and just looking specifically at his slider, um, and I'm looking at the runs above average per 100, okay? So in 2020, the pitch was worth 1.6. Last year, it was worth negative 0.22. This year, it's worth negative uh, 0.83. So clearly, the value of his slider has continued to decrease every year he's been there. And it's at a point now that the Cardinals are saying, we don't think that's a viable pitch, okay? Um, now, that's only one pitch, but if you look at Jake Woodford's uh, numbers on there for 2022, the fastball is the only pitch he's throwing that's uh, generating a positive uh, value. And again, I think you take a look at that. It's easy to say, yeah, I don't think this is a, a major league pitcher. You know, a guy that can only throw one pitch that's generating positive value. I mean, even just just logically, again, without even if you're not somebody who's clicked through on fan graphs, who's looked at this spreadsheet, I think it's easy to understand a guy who can only throw one pitch that is has positive value that guy's not not viable. So, um, so Ben, to me, that that's one thing that we can look at as fans and see exactly what the Cardinals are seeing when it comes to Woodford. Yeah, and it, I found that particularly interesting. Uh, that comment, um, just because, and we've touched on this on past episodes, and I don't want to belabor the point, but you know, Woodford last year, and it has continued this year, uh, has you know, basically abandoned his changeup, his curveball, and greatly reduced his four-seam fastball and become really a sinker-slider pitcher. So to hear the manager say, and, and he was talked about positively for the way he threw those pitches in the zone in the second half last year by the front office. And so to hear the manager say, uh, basically the opposite thing of what like Mike Schultz was saying about John Gant last year, where, you know, Hey, we've got to keep, you know, he's showing skill for getting out of all these jams. He walks himself into here. We have a guy who's even had some decent success this year. And the manager is looking much more at process and being blunt about it, where it's, he transitioned to sinker slider like we wanted, but his slider still isn't good enough and he needs to improve it in order to have success in the majors. And, yep. uh, you know, that's uh, a pretty blunt assessment and some insight into the way the front office and the major league coaching staff uh, are looking at pitchers. 
Yeah. Well, and then when you take that same logic and you apply it to Dakota Hudson, um, it's not as extreme. You know, Dakota Hudson is a better pitcher than Jake Woodford is, but you can see some of these same trends there. So Dakota Hudson, as as of today, has a 3.29 ERA, and that jumped uh, close to a run, I think, even just from that last start, which actually wasn't even that bad of a start. But again, a number of runs that were considered earned to him happened to come across. You know, he only walked two batters. He pitched seven innings, I think. Really, overall, it was it was not a particularly terrible start. Um, you know, his, his fielding independent pitching, 4.20. Okay, so again, that jumps off the page to me and says the actual quality that he's pitching with is, is higher than that. And I think, you know, this last outing was just one of what we could probably expect to be a trend of kind of, you know, reverting closer and closer to those fielding independent pitching numbers. Now, when it comes to positive value, uh, Hudson generates positive value on both his fastball and his slider, which if you've watched Hudson pitch, makes sense. I mean, those are both good pitches. Um, but again, that's, that's also only two pitches. Um, you know, is that enough for him to be, uh, to remain a, a viable starter? That's going to be a little bit of the challenge for him going forward. Um, you know, there are certainly are starters and pitchers who are successful with that, but Adam Rain- Wainwright, for example, generates positive value on four different pitches. Um, you know, and that's kind of a more traditional mold of what you'd typically see out of a, out of a starting pitcher. So, um, I just bring Hudson up because again, I know, um, you know, I've kind of said in the past that I'm I'm a little skeptic on Hudson. I'm not, you know, completely, you know, bought in into Hudson, and I certainly don't think Hudson is as good as his uh, early ERA and his ERA over the past two partial seasons has suggested. And when I look at him with the same lens that the team is looking at Woodford through, you know, th- that's what I see. So I still, you know, Hudson, I see being a back into the rotation guy right now. I think there's been positive uh, movement this year. I think the walks improving is a huge thing for him. And so I, th- you know, I think it, there's uh, potential for Hudson to, you know, to be, you know, more than he has been. But so far, to me, he still looks like that, you know, kind of right at the back end of the rotation type type guy when I look at it through that lens. Yeah, I I think we're looking at a you know, forgive the comparison, but kind of a Jason Marquis uh, type of starter, a guy who's useful and, you know, frankly might be able to hang on in the majors for a while because he does have that one really good trick, which is the sinker and is, you know, a top, I don't know, top 25 sinker, probably top 30 sinker in major league baseball. And that pitch being so good, allows him to get out of some of the jams he pitches himself into with the walks by getting ground balls that his elite infield defense behind him turns into outs. And so how long can he keep that trick up? I don't know. We'll see. But uh, I have a feeling when it comes to the Cardinals, it won't be past his arbitration eligibility expiring. (laughs) Right. I, I would tend to agree with that. So, Ben, as long as we're talking about starting pitching here, um, let's shift gears just a little bit. Another piece of news that came out fairly recently was the, the idea that Stephen Matz maybe is not on such a quick timeline as they thought um, coming back. Uh, I know on our last show, you and I talked about and we briefly entertained the idea, would the Cardinals acquire a starting pitcher? And I think our consensus was that uh, you know, assuming Flaherty and Matts both returned, they would not. But in the event that one of them could not, 
maybe it opened up the possibility for that. And certainly in the short term, it opens up opportunities for, you know, guys like Payante and Thompson and Liberatore, who, of course, have been pitching here in this Pirate series. So, Ben, what do you see them doing to cover innings going forward now with this new information about Steven Matz? Well, the Matt's news, I think, is pretty scary. Uh, and, you know, Matt's gave a quote where he thought it would be one week and he would take a week off and be back out there. And he compared it to his 2016 injury um, a little bit. And, you know, they essentially had to shut him down uh, again and give him complete and total rest. And his most recent throwing session was on flat ground, which we all know is, you know, the smallest of baby steps in the recovery process. And hearing Matt's describe that as gr going great, and then Marmal being like, well, we had success this time, but we have to repeat it, uh, kind of made me uh, arc and eyebrow because I was thinking to myself, well, yes, true, but that seems uh, awful, maybe skeptical in the way that it was worded. And it makes me wonder, you know, not that he's Mark Mulder, but we've all lived through this type of thing before uh, with the shoulder. And while the player's trying to be upbeat, you know, the, the course that this has taken. Uh, is frankly, it's concerning, especially in the first year of a multi-year deal if you're the Cardinals. But also if you're Mats, you don't want to, you know, your first year with your new team and, you, you know, you haven't quite performed in terms of earned run average the way that you wanted. And now you're sidelined with injury. And for the Cardinals, it's a big problem because they already have Jack Flaherty out. Now, hopefully Flaherty comes back, Ben. He's at mm -hmm. uh, 75 pitches. Uh, he's at... Um, to have, I, I think, join the major league team after his uh, next rehab start. And so it's very realistic that Jack Flaherty steps in for Mats, but then you still have to fill in that vacancy that right. was Flaherty's vacancy. And yeah. so you still right have now, I, Piante, Thompson, Liberator, maybe down the road Hicks, basically, kind of spot. Yes. And there was a part of me that wondered if Hicks had been healthy and was able to go, you know, five-ish innings with, you know, three or so runs allowed, if they were going to maybe kind of go to a six-man rotation to help uh, ease the burden on everyone uh, who was coming back from injury, including like Flaherty, but also Hicks. You yeah, know? and but so, I think yeah. I think that's even harder with the you know the the short outings that they're still consistently getting, and you know if you're only getting uh, you know five and change on average from your yep. starters having a sixth guy that's just uh you know one day every six you've got even fewer relievers so i think that'd be a challenge i'm really interested to see what happens with hicks and i i feel like the consensus view is well the the starting experiment didn't work so they need to plug him into the back into the bullpen but i don't know if that's the right answer and i don't know if it's what the cardinals will do and, and ben i think one one of the pro problems in evaluating it is you know part of the reason they moved hicks to the, to starting was to keep him on a more regular schedule. They thought for his, his health, that was going to be more optimal for him. Also, 
because they really kind of implemented this at the 11th hour of spring training, he didn't get stretched out in spring training. So he came into the season knowing he was going to be on more limited pitch counts going forward. Now, the problem is he never really went longer into games. But Ben, I don't think I know exactly why that was, you know, was it health or was it and, you know, just that his pitch counts were getting too high? Or was it the fact that generally after a few innings, he was getting into enough trouble that you had to go anyway? I feel like both things are happening simultaneously. So I don't really know what the, the motivation was or what the Cardinals were thinking about what he was doing in those games he was pitching. I agree with that. And I'll add another question for you. What about Hicks's performance this year makes you think you want him in the sixth, seventh, or eighth inning in a close game to take yeah. the ball and throw? Yeah. Um, no, I mean, very little. Um, and, and especially, I would say, what makes you think uh, kind of a short burst end of the game reliever? You know, he's, frankly, he never really profiled that way. And we've talked about that before. I mean, despite the 105 mile an hour stuff, he did not generate a lot of, you know, strikeouts. He wasn't a classic kind of into the game pitcher and, and he's still not. So I think his future is a multi-inning guy one way or the other. It's just maybe to be seen, do they want to deploy him out of the bullpen as kind of a maybe two to three inning guy? You know what's interesting to me, since he's already on the injured list, and they do have a few of these other options they can at least kind of, you know, cycle through and audition through that fifth spot. I think it'd be really interesting to send him down to the minors and let him sort of fully stretch out there, you know, to whatever degree he wasn't, he, you know, some of these other factors maybe kept him because again, you know, if you're in the major, in a major league baseball game, you know, even if they want you to throw 75 pitches that day or 90 pitches that day, you know, if you're issuing walk too many walks in the third, you're going to get pulled. If they send him down to triple a, it can be, He's throwing 90 pitches today and no one cares what the score is or, you know, what he's doing. You're going to get that. Yes. But you could at least kind of remove that variable. Exactly. So I think that would be really interesting to see them experiment with that. Let him actually get stretched out down at the minors and kind of see how it looks. And then you've at least eliminated that sort of health um, and, and stamina uh, as a factor in it. And if you see, OK, he can do that, then it's just a question of, you know, is he a good enough, consistent enough pitcher to utilize him? And, you know, again, maybe you see that a little bit with what he's doing in the minors or maybe, you know, you bring him up and you give him another shot in the rotation. But, um, you know, Hicks has such electric stuff. I feel like Hicks's ceiling is so much higher than so many of these other pitchers we've talked about. I think his floor is pretty darn low, too. But I, I'd still like to see him get another shot. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, and I think that if I were the higher ups, just based on where he is, the amount he's thrown over the last couple of years and the fact that he's coming back from injury, um, I, I would want to have minimum and extended rehabilitation stint. Um, and I think I would, uh, I think I would have him do it as a starter because I think the team will almost certainly need starter innings down the road. Um, and, uh, having him iron out the kinks down in the minors or see if they're able to do that at all. That would give you clarity one way or the other, right? Yeah. He's not able to succeed in double A AA or triple A. He's not going to succeed in the majors. So now we're going to just commit to 
seeing what he can provide as a relief pitch now and in the future. And I, cause it feels unresolved. I'm in the same boat as you, Ben. Why was he not successful there toward the end? Was it that he can't be successful as a starter or was it physical uh, issues contributing to his inability to perform? And, you know, that's an, that's something that the team and the player know and that, and we, the fans don't. Yeah. So Ben, real quick, before we move on to the next topic of those kind of other guys we mentioned, and I think really it's Payante Thompson and Liberator. Do you have any thoughts on, you know, either of them in terms of what you expect to see from them? Do you expect any of them to be, you know, good enough and sticky enough that they lock themselves into a rotation spot for the duration of the season? Um, right now it feels like Payante has the inside track. The manager has been around him most of the year mm-hmm. and likes what he sees has also commented positively on his mental makeup, how he doesn't care what the situation is. Uh, he's there to perform. Um, and you know, he has a good fastball. Now I think he seems to have changed his mechanics a little bit. And I think he's a little bit, it seems like he has more effort in his delivery. So I'm interested to see how that translates to starting over the long haul. And I'm also interested to see how his pitch mix plays uh, or changes uh, in starting because he has a good four seam fastball. It profiles good. He's thrown it well. He's also thrown it about 60% of the time. And so you know, can that work in the majors? Sure. But you've got to be good with it and you've got to be on with it. Um, and so I'm interested to see if he can continue with that profile. Um, you know, listeners to the podcast, and you are familiar that I am not too terribly high on Liberator. Uh, to me, and I can't remember uh, the context where I saw this, but uh, I think Kyle had the question of, is is Steven Matz's career a success for Matthew Liberator? Mm-hmm. And I, I remember thinking to myself, Oh, absolutely. Like oh, you yeah. would, you would be thrilled if he gave you that and absolutely. folks can go look up Steven Matz's career on their own, but yeah. you know, we aren't, we aren't talking about, uh, you know, Cole Hamels here. Um, no, but and... but at the same time, to be a major league starting pitcher for his and what's what's uh, Matt's like maybe his sixth year in the majors or something like that. Um, there's not it's a short list of guys that have that kind of track record. Oh, you know? sure. Steven Matz's sure. career would be a success for Marco Gonzalez, who's not quite there yet for, you know, anybody. I, I think partly it's just that we we maybe set the bar too high. And especially when it comes to, to starting, because these guys not only have to be effective pitchers, but they have to have that health and endurance to go to put in so many innings. And that's where you yeah. lose so many guys who actually are pretty talented pitchers, but they, you know, they, they end up in bullpens because they can't do that part of it yeah and i think the the frame the frame that i'm looking at it through is kind of top raise prospect traded for an outfielder you know and what is the expectation for him he is still young but i just don't know what the recipe for success is for him yeah and in all of his starts you know it's looking at that fastball location and the command of it. And then also the feel for the changeup, because that's, 
he has to be able to throw that change up against righties. And right now I'm just, I'm not sold on it. So I'm interested to see. Um, and Thompson had such a lackluster year last year and has bounced back quite well this year, but he seems to have that kind of bulldog mentality um, that uh, managers like and fans like, and I like uh, as a fan. And so I'm interested to see how that fastball curveball plays when he's starting uh, maybe more regularly against major league hitters. Cause I, I, I've never quite been sold on how they play off of each other. Uh, and I'm really hoping to be proven wrong now that we get more and better video and pitch data. Yeah, no, I'm, and I'm with you on these guys. I mean, I think uh, any of them has the potential to be uh, a solid major league starting pitcher. I don't think I expect any of these guys to be, you know, ace starting pitchers, um, but they're all still really pretty early in their development cycle too. So, um, you know, if even one of them can achieve some of that success this year, it'll be a, a huge, huge win for the Cardinals. And frankly, looking like something that they're going to need because <laughs> that spot is open. Um, but as long as we're talking about guys uh, from Memphis, Ben, I think we should talk about uh, Paul DeYoung. So uh, Paul DeYoung, as we record this, and we are recording a little before you hear it, so he's probably hit a couple more home runs since I say this. But Paul DeYoung has hit uh, seven home runs uh, so far in June. Um Ali Marmol um, just uh, was asked about it and, and gave some comments just uh, real recently saying that kind of admitted that his staff was taking notice of the recent power surge uh, from Paul DeYoung. And he said, uh, uh, when we put together our best team early in the season, we talked about DeYoung being our starting shortstop. So that was, uh, you know, what Marmol had to say about it. The production is there. Ben, what do you see this team doing with uh, with Paul DeYoung? Um, I saw a chat with Rick Hummel from stltoday.com, uh, where he stated that he thought he might be with the major league team within a few days and that he had three to one odds to reclaim the starting shortstop job because the infield defense would be so good. And that would push Nolan Gorman to DH, uh, and, to platooning with Pujols. And I don't know why so many in the St. Louis media establishment seem hellbent on Nolan Gorman being a designated hitter. It's really fascinating to me, but I don't think a hot couple weeks in Memphis is enough to give Paul DeYoung the magic ticket to starting shortstop. And I think if they called him up right now, who are you going to send down? Yepes, you know, like it's, or do you want to give those, who do you want to give, take plate appearances away from and give them to Paul DeYoung? Well, I think if, and, you, and, I, I think if, I think if you bring Paul DeYoung back up onto this team, you, you may be part ways with Edmondo Sosa. And, and I don't know that they're likely to do that, but I'm saying, I think that would be what they had to decide. And, you know, what is the role that they see for, you know, DeYoung going forward? Would they uh, say, hey, okay, we're going to bring DeYoung up and we're going to use him in this kind of utility middle infielder role? That's possible. I don't think that's especially likely. Um, you know, would they say we're going to plug DeYoung back in at shortstop and move Edmund into more of a super utility role? 
I think that's probably a slightly better idea, but I don't see Edmund not getting, uh, you know, the majority of, of starts right now. So I don't think that's particularly likely either. To me, I honestly think a trade seems like the most likely thing to happen with, you know, with Paul DeYoung as he kind of reestablishes his value there. And and frankly, I think Paul DeYoung would have a decent trade value out there. And, um, you know, it's, it's worth remembering Paul DeYoung signed a very early extension for pretty low dollars. So just for context for folks, he's being paid $6 million this year. He's under contract next year for $9 million. There's actually two option years after that for 12.5 and 15 million. But, you know, given where he's at this year, I think we can assume those aren't going to factor in. All right. $6 million and $9 million is pretty close to nothing in terms of starting Major League Baseball players. Remember, the Cardinals signed Corey Dickerson for $5 million. They signed a free agent who they expected to be a platoon designated hitter and basically just kind of a backup for until their young guys were able to take over. I mean, that's about the lowest level of you know Major League position player that you can po- possibly sign on an open market. And Paul DeYoung's only making $1 million more than that. Uh, Andrelton Simmons, who's a shortstop, he signed for $4 million with the Cubs this year to be a backup, okay? Uh, Last season, when he signed to be a starting uh, shortstop, he was paid $10.5 million, okay? So my point is, if Paul DeYoung kind of reestablishes himself in the minors, and there's reason to believe that he can be, uh, you know, serviceable, you know, even approaching league average major league shortstop, that $6 million this year and $9 million next year, that's not going to dissuade a team. That's a completely reasonable um, you know, investment. I don't think the Cardinals would, would get a lot just for DeYoung on his own, but we've talked about this a couple times. There's a lot this year that lines up um, similar to the Alan Craig deal um, that they – uh, that they did when they brought in John Lackey. And if you if you consider uh, DeYoung as the sort of Alan Craig portion of that, and frankly, DeYoung is looking a lot more valuable than Craig was, and DeYoung has a lot less uh, future dollars tied up in him. But I think, you know, a Paul DeYoung with a, you know, a prospect that, not not a top prospect and a prospect that the Cardinals maybe don't feel like they have a place for uh, or two, you know, I could see that being a trade that that came together. What, what do you think? Well, I, it's it's interesting to me um, the idea of them kind of showcasing him, yeah, uh, for potentially a trade. Um, but you know, you do wonder how much more of an opportunity they give Sosa. Um, but also where do they get the young plate appearances? And that's just what I keep coming back to is, you know, do you sit Donovan? Do you sit Edmund? Do right. you sit, you know, Arenado? Do you, you know, cause he used to kind of play some third base. He used to even play some first base, but right. when you look at the way this roster is constructed and it's built to win now are you going to give plate appearances to Paul DeYoung if he's not giving you the best chance to win on any given day? Or maybe you just let him play against Pittsburgh, Cincinnati, and the Cubs because you feel like you can beat them, 
even if DeYoung doesn't perform and maybe he'll give some inflated stats and you can trade him that way. And that was just kind of my jab at the tanking games in the office <laughs> control. But yeah, I, to me, it's a very difficult thing to showcase Paul DeYoung for a trade. To me, if he comes back to the majors, it's as a utility guy and yes. probably with a role fairly close to Sosa's. Absolutely. And I agree. I think the showcasing him for a trade only happens with what he's doing at Memphis right now. And either they trade him from Memphis or if they bring him up, it's it's because they're they're saying, okay, you're our, you're our utility infielder now and you are moving into that Sosa role and you may not be getting a, a many more uh, plate appearances or innings than Sosa's getting right now. But, you know, if they did that, you know, if it came to that, I think uh, Paul DeYoung, if he's kind of reestablishing a baseline more like what we would have expected from him, he's a clear upgrade over Sosa. Um, you know, I mean, Sosa doesn't do anything with the bat, um, you know, and, and uh, you know, DeYoung can, you know, play, you know, plus defense at shortstop, hasn't maybe played those other positions for a while, but did play them in, you know, uh, earlier in his career. I'm sure he would do fine if you ever were to use him at third or short. But again, if you're going to have him in the game, you probably have Edmund or Gorman at, at second anyway. And or have a second. anyway, you know what I'm saying. So, um, yeah, that's my expectation is either he's showcasing himself now for a trade or they just sandbag and say, we can't unload this guy. Um, and, you know, he becomes their new utility infielder. Those are kind of the, the two paths I see right now is really likely. Uh, I agree with you. I just would be surprised if they call him up and, you know, give him those, that string of starts, like he's the everyday shortstop that he had before he went down uh, when he couldn't perform. No, I I agree with you a hundred percent. I don't see him getting that unless there was an injury to one of these guys, because yeah, otherwise he's, he's just, he's behind too many guys, you know, to really, to justify that. So um, all right. Well, um, Ben, we have reached that point in the show where I think we should dive into some w- listener questions. I'm just getting the uh, the document opened up right here. So um, the first question we had is from uh, Jared Hall. He's at Good Old Red. And he says, uh, are you like me? And I know I am. No, he doesn't say that. But he says, are you like me, skeptical that Flaherty can ever be a consistent mainstay in the rotation? Young pitchers and injuries worry me. See Alex Reyes. So, Ben, what's your what's your thoughts? Oh, it's definitely concerning. Um, you know, the the shoulder in particular uh, and he cites to Alex Reyes, and Reyes has had uh, a litany of arm issues, but most recently the shoulder is, has been the, the biggest problem. Right, and the and shoulder so injuries is, are always the worst. So Yes, and you know, you've kind of had this back and forth uh, with Flaherty and the team, and what is the issue? And Flaherty seems to believe it's bursitis, which is not great, but is way better than something wrong with a labrum or a rotator cuff. And so right now you have from Flaherty uh, the information that he feels as good as he has felt since, or the best he has felt since 2019, and he's ready to go. Um, And it does make you wonder if he had an off season with the Cardinals training staff to prepare 
uh, w might this have played out differently? Um, you know, if the owners had not locked out the players and, and forbidden contact with the players uh, during the lockout, might things have gone differently? And we'll never know that counterfactual. Um, but at least right now, I feel a lot better about Jack Flaherty than I do about Steven Matz sitting here today. Yeah. Um, and that's just because he's further along in the rehabilitation process. Um, and I would also say I was really concerned about Miles Michaelis entering yeah. this season and his ability to stay healthy. And we've all seen uh, how good he has looked so far this year. And yeah. so, uh, you know, pitchers are hurt until they aren't and they're healthy until they aren't. Yeah, <laughs> and exactly. That's just kind of the cycle. And, you know, we really, I, I hate to be kind of facetious about it, but I don't think there's much of a chance that Jack Flaherty is a St. Louis Cardinal after he hits free agency. Uh, so this is really only a worry uh, for another uh, couple of years now. Um, and then another fan base will be worrying about his shoulder health. Yeah, I mean, I think the short answer is, if you ask me, am I skeptical that any reliever can be consistent or any pitcher, excuse me, can be consistent. My answer is yes, because <laughs> I just assume <laughs> they're all either injured or about to get injured. And yeah, it is. It's such a, a hill to climb to be the the guy who can give you starters innings year after year after year. And we see this all the time. I think back even to Carlos Martinez, who I think in our short-term memory remember as the injured guy, but came up as a reliever and then was a consistent 200-inning-a-year guy for several years, and then he wasn't because he just got injured. The injuries mounted up. He couldn't do it anymore. It happens to everybody at a certain point. You never know when it's going to happen. And then it can even... On the rarest of occasions, like with Adam Wainwright, you can have a guy who you've kind of assigned to the injured guy part of your brain, who then you look up and you're like, holy cow, he's been like uh, one of the league leaders in innings pitched for the last three seasons, and he's 40 years old. But again, Adam Wainwright is is you know very unique and magical, so that not a not a common situation. Um, sp sticking with pictures, uh, Max Wunsch at Wunsch asks any concerns about Helsley's declining K rate over the last month? Um, I don't have any. Uh, his, his pace to start the year was so otherworldly. Um, it was also very cold. Uh, pitchers tend to do a little bit better early in the year. And then also coming off of the way the offseason played out with the lockout, pitchers were ahead of batters, according to most assessments. And so you're going to have ebbs and flows like this. And, you know, he's down around league average, I think, uh, through a handful of appearances this month. But, you know, if he has an appearance or two in the next week where he strikes out a couple guys, you know, he's going to be right back up there where you expect him to be. And so, uh, you know, I, I'm not too worried about it at all. Yeah, and I, I'm not either, Ben, for um, essentially the reasons that, that you said. Um, he started out doing incredible, so 
you have to expect there'd be some regression there. Um, every pitcher is going to go through some periods of the year where they're they're pitching really well, some periods where they're not pitching really well. I haven't seen anything with him like declining velocity or just you know suddenly he can't find the zone or stuff that would suggest injury or things like that that would make me worried. So I'm not too worried about it. And, and again, I, I feel like I say this in almost every podcast, but I just don't believe in relief pitchers in general. <laughs> they have such a thin, uh, you know, such a razor thin margin for success for most relief pitchers who are often guys out there with maybe a two pitch mix oftentimes one really plus pitch and then their their other pitch that they throw to catch you every now and then because you're not expecting it and so when they to have any kind of struggle it tends to magnify because they're not again they're not an adam wainwright throwing or a miles michaelis you know throwing multiple pitches you know uh who can you know okay this isn't working today i'll go to this and then i'll go to this you know relief pitchers usually have one thing <laughs> so um but you know helsley's been very good and even with a little bit of a you know maybe less dominant lately i'm not too worried all right our next question comes from Steve Gloriad at S. Gloriad. He asks, Edmund has exceeded my expectations this year. He's leading the MLB in war per baseball reference this year and has averaged 5.5 war per 162 over his career um, per baseball reference, which is elite. Has your evaluation of him changed at all? This seems like an everyday player. And and Ben, you tackle, we had a somewhat similar question last week, or uh, last show, I should say, kind of comparing um, – Edmonds, uh, some of his uh, baseball savant stat cast numbers with uh, 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 Nolan Arenado's. Um, I feel like uh, we really, people know us as the, the podcast that doesn't believe in Tommy Edmonds. So I think that <laughs> we will continue to continue <laughs> so you're to get yourself. <laughs> What's that? So you you feel oh I need to take this so that you could distance yourself. No, I'm, I'm no, no, I, no, no, because I'll jump in. Um, I think I think you took. I think you. Um, I mean, I'll let you jump in on this as well. But I think you kind of showed that one last year. But so the, the two things that I want to say to this. Um, uh, now, first of all, the and, and I understand the question. He doesn't say that Edmund is elite, but he says that this recent kind of stretch of wins above replacement is at at an elite level. I, I just want to say, I in no way think Tommy Edmund is an elite player. That I don't, I don't believe at all. But um, you know, I would say that I have upgraded my um, evaluation of him a bit this year. Um, and I think, you know, we talked about I think in the preseason, and then um, even as there were starting to be some rumblings about. Uh, moving him to shortstop, you know, I said that I, I've always been interested in the idea of if Tommy Edmund can play second, can play shortstop, I see him as being a more viable everyday player than I did at second base. And it's, again, it's just because that defensive value at shortstop is so much more significant. And so again, for context, folks, uh, Tommy Edmund, each of the last two players has finished the year with a, a 91 runs, cr- runs created plus. So he's been like 9% below average as a hitter. Okay. Um, but again, you know, position plays into that. Like for a first baseman, of course, that would be terrible. You would, you, you would, no way you would have a player like that. But, you know, for a catcher, uh, that'd actually be pretty good. That's probably league average or better, I would think, for a catcher. You know, and even for, you know, uh, as you move down the defensive spectrum, you know, shortstop is one of those positions that's up there as well. So, you know, Tommy Edmund at shortstop, if he can, you know, maintain this, uh, you know, a, a somewhat similar defensive value, I think he becomes a little bit more interesting. The other thing, Ben, I have to admit, um, I've seen enough success at the plate this year from Tommy Edmund that I have upgraded my expectations of him a, a bit, I would say. Um, the you know the walk rate um, has has stayed at a at a higher level than it's been. Um, so 
uh, I think, you know, there, you, there's reason to hope that can continue. Um, you know, I look at other things, his, um, his ex-WOBA on contact, his barrels, his uh, hard hit rate, all of those, they're a tick up this year, okay? They're not dramatically up, um, but there's enough improvement kind of across the board there that I'll say right now, my expectation is at the end of the season, Tommy Edmund ends, instead of being that 91 weighted runs created plus, I'm guessing he's kind of in the 95 to 100 range. And I think Tommy Edmund, if he can be in that sort of 95 to 100, so really like right at league average, maybe a smidge below, and play uh, valuable defense and be a, a plus base runner, um, you know, I think that's a that's a, a, a solid everyday shortstop to have in there. That's not an elite player, but that's that's kind of my evaluation of Tommy Edmund right now. What what say you, Ben? Um, I think that this happened last year, uh, and also in rookie year where he got off to a hot start. And his rookie year was basically the beginning of the season. Uh, for the month of May, he had a below average walk rate. Uh, and so it's climbed back up uh, and he's had a decent performance uh, so far this month, but he's played, you know, the Rays who did well against him and bad teams. And so I think uh, I've never been one who likes the uh, – the way of evaluating a player where you take their career total and divide it by 162 and say, you know, this guy is this type of wins above replacement player. Um, I think people most infamously did it with Peter Borges uh, back when the Cardinals acquired him from the angels. Um, and the reason is you have to put that together for an entire season and make adjustments and uh, best the league to be that type of elite player. And Edmund hasn't shown the ability to do that. And the primary reason is he just doesn't have a lot of power and doesn't hit the ball in the air enough. And if he is able to make, and we've talked about this time and time again, and I hate to keep harping on it, but when Edmund hits the ball in the air, he is a better offensive player. This year he has hit the ball uh, too often on the ground to have sustained success. Uh, and that's why, you know, I think he was he was tied for like a hundred and some in home runs and in doubles this year. He's not leading the league in doubles this year. He's he's ranked in the triple digits uh, as we record this, and his isolated power, which eliminates singles and focuses only on doubles, triples, and home runs, was also ranked in the triple digits. And you just don't see a lot of guys who have 9% or higher walk rates if they're not hitting for any power because pitchers will challenge them. And so I think that uh, will prevent him from being an elite player. Uh, he might be, you know, kind of like a John Jay type maybe. Uh, I, I think he his range is probably like between Descalso and John Jay, like in there, but it, much, it, much faster and better at defense. Yeah, you know, it's funny you say that because I have to say, even from a narrative perspective, something that I, I have actually been thinking about John Jay in relation to Tommy Edmond as well, because I have to admit that for most of John Jay's Cardinals career, 
I was looking for the better option that the Cardinals could find to replace John Jay, <laughs> you know, because, you know, John Jay, John Jay had things that he did well, but he was, he was definitely limited, you know, and, and so, um, you know, throughout his career, uh, you know, first, of course, it was Colby Rasmus, right, was the, you know, the, the top, you know, whatever top 10, or I don't remember how high he got on the prospect list, but you're like, man, once Rasmus is here, you know, he's going to be a, you know, five tool guy. He's going to, you know, do that. Well, we know how that played out for, you know, personality performance and, and other reasons. Right. Well, then a couple years later, uh, Peter Borges, by the way, making his second appearance on tonight's podcast. <laughs> but, uh, you know, when, when the Cardinals traded for Peter Borges, uh, there was a lot of the same conversation. It was like, okay, great. Now they can kind of upgrade from John Jay. You know, of course, Borges did not perform, and soon enough, Jay's back in his starting role there. So I, I, I definitely have to acknowledge that there's a, been a degree of that with Edmund as well, where, you know, Edmund is not the sort of superlative player, but, you know, Edmund has been relatively consistent in what he does. And, and I, you know, I do have to give him credit for that. And, and I think looking back, I might see, oh, yeah, look, you know, Edmund stuck around longer and Edmund provided, you know, value over a longer period of years than maybe I thought he was going to at, at any point in that in that timeline. Um, so, Ben, uh, final question we have. The, the other thing. That, uh, oh, no, I was also just going to say he has a good base because he, he's very good at defense. So he has that as a as a floor. Yep. And he's also a very good base runner. Now that one, the four, that doesn't reinforce the four quite as much because he has to get on base to leverage it, which is why you're seeing him high on the wins above replacement leaderboards this year because of the walks. His ability to be elite uh, or even above average is really going to hinge on his ability to walk. Um, and I'm not sold on it without a corresponding increase in power. Yeah. Well, yeah, we'll, I mean, we'll keep an eye on it. And I believe me, Ben, we will keep getting questions about it. I, I have no doubt about that. Uh, our last uh, question <laughs> from Sashin Parikh asks, is Ozuna for Alcantara, Gallon, and Sierra the worst trade of Moe's tenure with the benefit of hindsight? Uh, ben, what say you? Uh, I, I think it has to be. If you just look at what uh, the the ace starters <laughs> for other organizations that came out of that trade. Now, whether or not either one of them could attain those heights in the Cardinals player development system with the Cardinals major league coaching staff is an open question to be sure. Um, and so I, I don't know that the Cardinals have missed out on anything necessarily. Cause I don't know if either one would have been as high quality uh, as they have been since leaving leaving the Cardinals, if they would have stayed with St. Louis, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, so Gallon. I mean, if it, you always had to put a little bit of an asterisk with Zach Gallon, because so the Cardinals traded Zach Gallon to the uh, to Miami. He was not a, a high a highly thought of prospect in the Cardinals organization in Miami, I believe actually passed him through waivers, maybe even released him, but he, you know, he didn't do anything in Miami either. It wasn't until he ended up in Arizona and, and, you know, from what I've read, he kind of, you know, blossomed and, you know, developed and really changed himself as a pitcher a couple years after he was out of the Cardinal system to become where he was. So, you know, that's one I feel like you have to say like, okay, that, you know, 
that's the kind of thing that can happen. That's not necessarily on them. But at the same time, you know, that's an asset that they let go there. And Alcantara was a highly thought of prospect in the Cardinals organization. And he was definitely someone who, I mean, I think he's he's really hit the peak of what his range of outcomes you know, were, but they knew that this was a guy who had this kind of potential. So, I mean, uh, you have him absolutely maximizing his value there. You have Gallon, you know, with an asterisk two years later, becoming a surprisingly excellent major league uh, uh, pitcher. Um, You have Magnaria Sierra, who, you know, serviceable backup outfielder, which is not without value. And for all of that, you got, uh, you know, a a bum in Ozuna, basically. So, um, I mean, at the time, the Cardinals needed power, so it made sense that they were going out to get a power bat. Um, Seems like they made the wrong choice in Ozuna, especially when we know that they wanted uh, Yelich and and acted early, uh, thinking Yelich wasn't available. And then like a month later, the Marlins were like, oh, okay, we'll trade Yelich. And the Brewers picked Yelich up for a package that at the time was thought to be basically comparable to what the Cardinals had given up for uh, Ozuna. It hasn't manifested as nearly the value the Cardinals did here. I think that's an interesting question. What if the Cardinals had gotten Yelich for this package and Yelich had had the crew he's had in Milwaukee and St. Louis? I don't think in that case people would think this was a, a, a bad trade. What do you think, Ben? Well, you know, do they sign him to the extension that he then kind of <laughs> <laughs> underperforms? We we might have been through the honeymoon period with him. That's true. Uh, if they made that trade, but if you would have, if you would have gotten those seasons when you got them, the Cardinals, you know, they might have played. They might have won another NL pennant. Oh yeah, uh, in there, it, yeah. it seems possible to me. Yeah, I mean, if you trade um, for a guy so, and, and he uh, wins an MVP, if you trade for a guy and he wins an MVP award with you, it's not often that you look back at that as a failed trade. Well, anyway, those are the questions that we received. Thank you, as always, to everybody who sends those questions in to us at Cardinals Off Day uh, on Twitter. Um, you can um, post them uh, on our Substack. Email them to us at cardinalsoffday at substack.com as well. Ben, as we wrap things up, uh, going forward, well, what are you going to be watching for? Uh, I am going to be watching for how many plate appearances Juan Yepes gets uh, with the St. Louis Cardinals. Uh, his production uh, has tailed off a little bit, uh, certainly since they promoted him. Uh, Tyler O'Neill and, and Dylan Carlson have rejoined the Cardinals, and they look to be something closer to their 2021 selves uh, than their early 2022 selves. And if they are hitting and playing good defense, uh, where can the Cardinals get plate appearances for Juan Yepes? And more and more, I'm beginning to wonder if the answer to that question is in Memphis. And even more so, uh, if they truly are going to promote Paul DeYoung and try to get him more plate appearances, it seems to me like Yepes would be the odd man out. Yeah, no, that's very interesting. And I, I'll be interested even more um, when Corey Dickerson comes back. And I, I think, you know, we, we said before we, we thought he was, you know, approaching a, probably a release from the team, but it would be a pretty Cardinals move to give him one last shot. And, you know, if they did that, that would certainly probably mean Yepes going down as well. Um, so, Ben, I, I, 
we already touched on this, but I'm going to be watching for uh, what happens with Jordan Hicks. Um, we haven't um, heard as much on his recovery, but what we have heard that, you know, he might be, uh, you know, throwing and potentially even ready to go on a, a rehab here. I think I heard even within the next couple of weeks. So I'm just, I'm going to be really interested to see, you know, w- w- what it looks like when he starts throwing and where they send him and how long they, they keep him there. Because um, as we talked about earlier, you know, do they continue to see him maybe having a future down the road in the in the rotation? And if so, maybe it's not just a, a rehab. Maybe it's a you know time in the minors to stretch out and find that. Uh, or do they believe that he can be that late inning guy again? And uh, you know, are they gonna <coughs> excuse me rehab him and? get him back up with the team right away. I think there'll be a lot of kind of uh, knock-on effects from that um, for what the pitching staff looks like. So that's something I'm going to be on the lookout for. Uh, Ben, do you have an off-day recommendation for folks? Uh, I am going to re-up the athletic article on Matt Carpenter's off-season where he talks about how he more fully embraced some of the more advanced tech and data on swings Uh, and baseball bats to kind of remake himself as a hitter uh, since his Cardinals uh, contract expired uh, with him re-emerging in a very loud way uh, on perhaps the biggest stage in the sport uh, in Yankee Stadium with the Yankees. Uh, It's really interesting to read that and then look at his profile as a hitter in New York. uh, And I encourage folks to give that a try. Yeah, it's been really fascinating to see what he does there. And he's uh, one thing he's exposing about me as a human being is out loud. I always say that I wish former Cardinals well, but the truth is I don't wish them that well, because if they do too well, then it's it's something the Cardinals have lost out on and I'm frustrated and I'm sad. So I'm glad to see that he had this uh, one last dance, but I'm ready for it to be done, Matt Carpenter. I'm ready for it to be done. So... Um, but again, that's me. I'm, I'm not a very good person. So for people who genuinely do wish him well, I, I commend you. Uh, so Ben, my off day recommendation for folks, and I'm sure people who are on social media have seen this all over the place. I'm obsessed with this doll E AI, uh, illustration program. Um, it's, it's like Salvador Dali, but it's D A L L dash E. So it's kind of like Wally, you know, um, you've probably seen these online. You, you type in just the most, insane random thing you can think of and this you know robot who we will all be working for in six months generates nine images that look exactly like this thing that you want it to generate uh i'm just my social media feeds are filled with these i continue to find them hilarious i'm sure they will they've probably gotten old for some people already but i want to encourage our listeners to check it out and specifically just create whatever kind of random Cardinals-related uh, image you can think of. And if you happen to get a good one, uh, post it on Twitter. Uh, tag us at Cardinals Off Day. We'd love to see those. We'd love to share those as we just see some particularly ridiculous ones coming out there. So, Ben, I think that's it. Anything else before we uh, wrap it up? No, that's all that we've got uh, to talk about on this Off Day. Until our next one, I hope everyone enjoys some St. Louis Cardinals baseball. Absolutely. Thanks, as always, to Devon for the theme music. Thanks to Dan for social media. And we will see you guys on the next Cardinals off day.